good to uh, see you all. We're uh, working our way through uh, the uh, first 12 chapters in the book of Genesis in this origin series, and we're in chapters 8 and 9 this morning. If you want to start turning your Bibles there, that would be fantastic, or your phones, whatever gets you in front of God's Word. But while you're flipping pages or uh, pulling up the app, just wanting to wondering how many of you have found yourself using this expression before, there are two sides to every story. You ever found yourself using that expression? We use it often in, uh, in marriages, uh, definitely use that in, in marriages when you're wanting to, not feeling like both sides are being heard, you bring up that fact, you're like, wait a second, there's two sides to this story. Or in politics, we definitely use that when you're uh, seeing things maybe too one-sided or slanted, we use that expression. Well, I would propose this morning that that's an appropriate statement in the story of Noah. In the story of Noah, when I read through the story of Noah, I'm like, man, there are definitely two sides of this story. Because when you, upon first read, somebody might pretty quickly come to the conclusion, shaking their fists at God, saying, why in the world, how could you have destroyed all of mankind except for one family left on the earth? You'd ask that question, maybe come to some false conclusions that, wait a second, that's not, that's not very loving. That's not, that's not appropriate for a God that I'd be interested in following, following. But if you actually look at it from both sides of the story, when you actually look at it through the, the lens of a reality about who God is, we have a God that actually walks the line perfectly between being the perfect judge and the lover of mankind, the perfect judge, and the lover of mankind. When you're reading the the story of Noah, you're like, man, that would be a a tough one. But think about the alternative. If God doesn't choose to intervene, imagine a reality completely absent of any kind of justice. Imagine a a reality when you're a, a parent and you're watching your son murdered by a man named Lamech and then he goes home and brags about it to his two wives. Imagine that reality. Imagine a reality where literally demons are taking here on this planet wives to be their own and then having children just in an attempt to destroy the line that will ultimately lead to Jesus. Imagine a reality where God's conclusion about man is this statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was the day of Noah. That was the reality of that existence where any logical person would scream from the top of their lungs, somebody has to do something. Somebody has to intervene. This can, oh, It has to be addressed. You can't just let this keep playing itself out because it's snowballing in a terrible direction. That's the story of Noah, and that's where God is left with a choice of how will he respond to that situation? How will, how, will he, how will he respond? How will he react to it? We see how he does choose to react. He reaches out to a man named Noah, a man that he and his family were showing signs of, of commitment and respect towards God. He reaches out and cha- challenges him or charges him to build an ark or a rescue boat if you will. So he starts for the next 120 years. We talked about that last week with John here. For 120 years, he's building this rescue boat that everybody is invited to get on. 
Everybody's invited to get on. And for those 120 years, we know that he heralds the message of coming judgment. Coming judgment, you gotta get on the boat. If you don't get on the boat, things are not going to go well for you. Imagine hearing that same message for 120 years from this crazy Noah guy. People don't respond to that. But as it starts getting closer, as it starts winding down, then we saw last week what happens. Animals, two by two, male, female, each, every different kind, starts marching onto this boat that he's finishing. Can you imagine your wheels are turning as you're watching this play itself out? Like, what in the world? Like, what, what's causing these animals to get on that boat without any kind of man's influence? They're just marching on that. You'd think that that would start stirring. Wait, maybe there is something to this statement of pending judgment. And then in your community, there's an old guy. His name is Methuselah. He's kind of the pillar of your community because he's lived 969 years. You know full well in your mind that his name means when he is dead, it shall come. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. And then when he breathes his last breath, you're so animals are going on the boat. This guy's breathing his last breath. You're like, wait a second. You would think that something would actually move you to take the invite of getting on that lifeboat. And unfortunately, no one chooses to take him up on that offer. What more, as I title this message in his defense, what more could God do without imposing his rescue on the disinterested? What more could God do? What more does he have to do? So many times he gets a bad rap, yet full well, he's been offering a way of rescue the entire time. See, present day, our current age, is basically Noah on uh, repeat. Noah version 2.0, if you will. We all have been warned of coming judgment. We all know that on the other side of this life, after we've breathed our last breath, there's pending consequence to our rejection of God. And there is a lifeboat that's been offered. What's his name? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the story of Noah. He's the rescue boat. He's the way out. He gives the, the option for mankind to say, you either take and participate in getting on that lifeboat or you will be forever lost. That's the story of Noah that we've been looking at, and it definitely echoes into present day, I would suggest. Let me pray before we explore this section of scripture. Lord Jesus, thank you for this chance to gather. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I thank you for how many of these things parallel our present reality. I pray, God, as we look at this story, that maybe some misconceptions about you and your character are corrected not as if you need a defense, God, but I feel compelled to give it. Pray that you guide our time in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So first defense you've already heard in the longest intro ever is he always offers rescue. That's what we see about him. And then the second one we're about to see in chapter 8, verse 1, is that he has not forgotten about you. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. I'm going to stop there just for a moment because this is kind of a, a fun reality or an important reality for us to understand that we don't have a God that forgets 
his kids, any parents, if we're going to be fully honest and transparent, anyone ever leave your kids somewhere not realizing <laughs> that you've left them behind? We, we've done it on a couple of occasions. I see a few people co- confessing. It's good we're in church, we're being honest. I uh, remember in a visit that we had, uh, we were in Vancouver visiting my uh, wife's family, and we were at her sister's house, and we were all going to this concert uh, event. This is about five years ago, four years ago. And, uh, and we're going out, and we're in multiple cars, and we get about half an hour, 40 minutes out, and all of a sudden, I see a FaceTime call from my daughter, Alexa. She did, she, she's, like, she's like, hey, mom, dad, y- you left me. You, you, you forgot me. I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, it's the most sinking feeling. Like, oh, I guess we have to go back. We're like, oh, that's going to mess up our plans. But anyway, we, we went back and, uh, and, and picked up our daughter and sweet little girl. She's like, yeah, I was just watching TV and I realized everybody had left. <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry about that. Well, encouraging word with that is that that's not our God. That's not our God. He, do, he doesn't forget his people. He doesn't, he doesn't abandon us. He's not that, that parent. In fact, we see when it says there, God remembered Noah. Imagine how many times on that boat in the year that they were sitting on there, how many times in the dark, damp, musty, with you wake up with an aardvark next to you, you're just like, has God forgotten me? Like, has he abandoned me? But we see here that he hasn't, that all the long, even when it seemed in his mind that he had been abandoned all along, God had been providing rescue amidst judgment, amidst judgment. So many of us, if God would allow us to, to see, for our eyes to be open, to see his provision, even when it seems like he's forgotten about us. When it used that statement, God remembered Noah, it's not like us, like a forgetful thing, the alternative of him not remembering. It's actually the moment in time that he takes action on his promises. Some of us are still waiting for that moment in time to come where he takes action on his promises, but that doesn't mean that the promises aren't still trustworthy, that you can't still cling to those, still hold on to those, that we have a God that remembers us and is actively involved in our lives. Verses 2 through 12, we're not going to read all of those, But we see something. We see that God starts, first off, that he starts bringing in a wind to provide the water to subside. This wind subside, the idea of of it evaporating back into the sky. Imagine that would have been a pretty cool thing to observe. God was causing that. I was thinking about it in my study this week that this planet really is dealing with the exact same water that we had back then. It's not like we're having new water that's poured into this world. It's not like sun's being taken out. It's just a recycling of everything. It's kind of gross when you actually think about it too deeply. But here's the, the idea. It's the same exact water that we're dealing with, and God is moving it from the face of the earth back into the sky, the clouds that we sometimes see in here in California. Verses 2 through 12, though, we see that Noah starts doing some things to check to see if the land is dry again. Who, uh, who's familiar with the story can tell me what they did, he did to check for dry land. What did he do? Sent out dove? What was the first bird he sends out? 
raven. So raven first, dove second. He decides, you know what, instead of me going out there, I'm going to send these birds to kind of check in on dry land. The raven was the first one. The raven is known for just having a wide palate of eating anything and everything. So he thought, you know, it wouldn't be that hard for a raven to survive, kind of like a nasty crow present day, uh, eating your garbage. But this idea, it was sent out. It finally doesn't return. That was good news. Second attempt is a little bit more finicky of a bird, a dove. A dove has a very uh, limited palate, things that it's willing to eat. They're looking for more fresh uh, food, maybe like some of us here in this uh, room. But the dove is sent out, and when it comes back, it was good news because what does it bring with, uh, with it? What does it have? Olive branch. See, some of you have some scripture in you. That's great. So he brings back an olive branch. Why would that be a big deal? Why is that? We're, we're talking today. Why is that a big deal? Good news. It's, a, it's all it's Olive Garden. No, the the, the the it's a it's it's showing that's what's happening on Earth. Things are are back to growing again. This is this is good news. This is like, hey, if a if an olive tree can survive out there, maybe I can as well. So all signs were pointing towards an encouraging result. The Earth is becoming inhabitable again. This is good news. But what I find interesting, after he, the dove doesn't return, verse 13 through 19 there in chapter 8, we notice that there's a delay in him going out. Almost two complete months after he's found out that the earth is dry, what in the world, why does he not go out and start a new life? Why doesn't he do that? See, what's interesting is that God in this, or, or, or I should say Noah, in the same way that he waited on the front end for God to close the boat door, he waits on the other end for him to open the boat door before he acts. So human intellect would say, hey, the coast is clear. Let's get out there and get started on a new life. But instead he says, you know what? I'm clinging to the promises of God, and I'm not taking a step forward. I'm not moving an inch until I'm confident that he's leading and that he's directing. What can we take from that? What, what, what can we glean from that? That's still the same thing is true. He hasn't forgotten about you. He actively wants to be involved in your life. He wants to actively lead and direct. And for us to blaze the trail independent of him is not demonstrating trust that Noah demonstrates in this situation, a beautiful picture of him acting out on his trust. So he waits the extra two months to, re, to prove or to demonstrate that he hasn't forgotten him. He hasn't forgotten him. In fact, some of us, I think if there's any message that you needed to hear this morning, I'm confident that that was probably it. He has not forgotten you. In fact, tell your neighbor right now that. Tell, say, he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. That's good news for us here this morning. Let me continue on. Some of us are like surprised with that. That's good news. Okay, continue verse 20. It says, he also notices... When we say thanks, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. 
That's kind of an interesting description there. We notice a little bit of what Noah's response is. When he first gets off the boat, he's been on this boat for 378 days. Can you imagine? That's a long time. How much light do you think there was on the boat? Not probably a whole lot. It's not like they, they have uh, canopy windows or it's not, you know, like what's going on there? Like, it's not like you're lighting fires in there. Not much light. Do you think it was smelling fresh on that boat? Like, do you think it's smelling pretty good with all the animals? You think, or is it kind of, kind of like, okay, we need off this boat. But what I love to see, his first response, getting off the boat, is to take time, slow down, rally the family together, and give praise to the giver of provision here, the protector, the one that had sustained their life, that had, uh, they, they had lost everybody. Everyone was gone, everyone gone, taking time to say thanks. And what I thought was beautiful, first off, he doesn't try to attempt to approach God anything other than making sure it's through spilt blood, remembering that was a necessary part of sacrifice. So God remembered Noah and Noah remembered God. Notice these words it says about our Lord. It says that he smelled the pleasing aroma. It said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. So seeing that it was pleasing to the Lord. My takeaway for that is this. Sometimes we can think to ourselves that God doesn't really notice or acknowledge or it's not that big of a deal whether or not I slow down and take things, whether or not I take time to celebrate him. But here's the takeaway. He notices. He notices, and it has the potential to actually bring pleasure to our God. So your choice this morning to set the alarm, your choice to get all your crazy kids and cars coming here, your choice to actually show up to church to worship, to give back a portion of your tithe and your offering, to, to, to elevate his word by giving attention to it even in these moments, those choices are noticed by our God. When we worship him, when we elevate him appropriately, our God notices and it has the potential to bring him pleasure. It's in those moments that he comes and says, in his heart, he decided. He decided, you know what? I'm not going to do this again. In his heart, he decided, I'm going to reset some of the things that had maybe been thrown off by the flood. I'm going to reset seasons, time, day, night, all of those things in response to our worship. Kind of a cool takeaway is that he notices when we say thanks. Continuing the text, seeing with this new setup, basically this was a, a complete reboot. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Catch this verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. He summarizes verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
So this is the hard start. This is a complete reboot of things. Anybody ever have to do that with your phone where it's like, ah, this thing is so messed up, it needs a complete hard reset. I was in Bolivia and my phone was doing crazy stuff last month and I was like, whoa, I got on the phone with a technician uh, using somebody else's phone and they're they're like, oh, I think what you have to do is just a hard reset. I'm like, I don't want to do that. It's like start, I still haven't done it. But anyway, this this idea of just, you know, things have gotten so broken that he's like, you know what, we're just starting over. We have some new expectations. So this is, once they're coming out, they're starting their new life, we look at God and he sets some new boundaries for them. What do you you see there in this section? These are kind of the new ground rules, no play on words there, new ground rules, if you will, as they're starting out their new life. First thing he tells them, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Basically in layman's terms, go make babies. Like that's a, like a, uh, basically the charge for mankind. So we think about that when we think about our God having all of these like difficult rules and boundaries for mankind. He's such a heavy-fisted God. He's like, uh, go make babies. I love when I'm talking to a, a young couple and they kind of talk and say, yeah, we're starting to try for children as if that's such a, a burden. And I'm like, well, I, I hope God sustains you in that. You know, like you're like, wait a second, God intended for that to be a, a beautiful thing as part of marriage. Sex is a, a gift. So that's his first expectation. Go have sex, make babies. Not so bad. Okay. So second expectation is this. He tells them, you know what? The animals, they're going to have a new fear of you. They're going to have a new fear for you. I think it would have been fun to be pre-flood and be around all the animals that didn't have any kind of fear for man. Wouldn't that have been a, a fun existence? That would have been awesome. But he says, we, they have a fear for you, but it's a rightfully so because it's open hunting season, basically. So for the meat lovers in the group, this was part two, version 2.0, that you're allowed to eat vegetables and now bring on the meat. So that's basically Arby's uh, slogan. You know, we have the meat uh, is the idea here. He's giving permission for them to partake in both. So recapping so far, where are we at so far? So God says, go make babies, enjoy some vegetables, now have some meat too. Does that sound like an unreasonable God so far? Okay, third one, it gets a little bit more intense. You see it in the section there. What does he tell him? He says, also, he says, I would prefer if you don't kill each other. I would prefer if you don't kill each other. He said, there's going to be some accountability. If you kill each other, you will, well, and this is where somebody gets kind of the description for capital punishment, then you'll be held responsible for that because man is made in my image. I want you to hold the life of mankind in high regard. There are consequences to murder, still outlined in our judicial system present day. He sets the standard for that. But even as I was thinking about that, I'm like, that's not that big of a demand. When, we were, when our kids were younger, Stephanie, who's been a family friend for a long time, would watch our kids, and we'd get back, and we'd kind of ask, hey, how did things go? What, what was going on? Would they have a good time? Is that, were they good kids? Were they brats? Like, what's up with that? And she's like, well, they all survived. And then we're like, well, that's good. We, she, it was kind of the repeat thing whenever she's with them. So much, though, we call it when she stayed, stayed with Stephanie, we'd call it Camp Alive. So if the kids survived, that was a winner. So it was like, hey, how'd they do at Camp Alive today? And so that was the running thing. I was like, the bar wasn't that high. So really, our God, as he's formulating the new expectation, he's like, you know what? 
Go make some babies, enjoy some good food, and don't kill each other. Does that sound like an unreasonable God? Does it sound like a heavy-fisted God, like a terrible tyrant of a, a leader? I, 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 I titled this, in his defense, I'm like, his boundaries are not unrealistic for mankind. He wants us to enjoy some of the things that he's created, and he says simply, don't kill each other while you're doing it. So that's his, his, his commitment. And then verses 8 through 17, I'm not going to read all of those, but basically this is him on the other side of that, expectations for us. Then he says, hey, just to clarify, I'm going to demonstrate a new commitment to you that I already came up with in my heart. Every time you see a rainbow, that's going to be a demonstration of my covenant promise to you not to destroy the earth. Kind of cool how God chose to demonstrate that. If you think about a rainbow, it consists of the reflection of rays of the sun through the particles of moisture in the clouds. So the very moisture that had just covered the earth, he's like, I'm going to use that as a demonstration. Can you imagine for seeing a rainbow for the very first time? Anyone ever see a rainbow where you can see the beginning of it? and actually see all the end of it. It's magnificent. Like it's amazing. Here's a little picture that's there, but you've seen them and there's something about us when we see a rainbow. Like when we're with our, our family and there's a rainbow, everybody's like, hey, did you see the rainbow? You stop everything. You like uh, potentially crash. You're like, whatever, we got to see the rainbow. Our God demonstrates in the sky the beauty of this promise in his covenant to us. He's committed to us even when we're not eh, that committed to him. Take a look at this response. This is the part of the story that isn't necessarily in the flannel graph in the kids program. Verses chapter 9, verses 18. Actually, verses 18 and 19, he reminds himself of who Noah's sons are. But then look at verse 20. Noah, this is on the other side of the flood, began to be a man of the soil. He was done building boats. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. All right, so no flannel graphs there, but you get the idea. This is a little bit of the, this part of the story. You're like, what's, what's happening here? What's, what's going down? It says that Noah tries out a new thing. He's got a new occupation. He's going he's gonna to plant a vineyard, and he told that what happens, told that he gets drunk. We do wonder if this is the very first time someone figured out how grapes work. Is this the first time fermentation is, is discovered? We're not sure exactly of all those details, but this is still not a, a great picture. This isn't Noah at his greatest moment. Can we agree on that? Although before we're too harsh, he had just been in a boat for a really long time with his kids, right? Like, you know, anybody do a road trip and you're like, uh, even driving to church, you're just like, that could lead somebody to drinking and naked anyway. But here's the idea uh, here that our, that our God uh, has some boundaries, has some guidelines in Noah, even what, regardless, I've read different interpretations on this. Either way, it's definitely pointing to the fact that he's wandered his own direction and his discernment this guy that was titled Righteous Noah is now found naked in a drunken stupor. Great reminder for us that careless decisions can destroy great reputations. Careless decisions can destroy great reputations. You see, this is him living out or demonstrating what God had just described in chapter 8, verse 21, is saying that we're evil 
from our youth. The problem wasn't the external situation back in Noah's days. The problem was within. He had saved this family, but there is still the same exact issue prior to the flood, is that we're born with this bent towards sin. We're born with this bent towards sin. And it wasn't just Noah. Take a look in verse 22. It says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24, But Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. He goes on with a pretty extensive curse. We're not going to read all of that, but basically the idea was it says that he saw his nakedness. The only conclusion that most uh, authors would point to here is that it was a major sign of disrespect. We don't know exactly what that entailed or if somebody was so, if it was such a commitment to not being seen naked or whatever it was, but either way, it was a dead, uh, definitive demonstration of disrespect for his parents. Kind of interesting, still present day, how we definitely have some room to grow in the respecting those above us, right? Whether it's parents, whether it's politics, whatever it is, definitely some room to grow in that area of respect. Here, they take it so seriously that Noah curses him that that would go on for generation and generation. It helps make some sense later on when the Israel conquers the Canaanites. But either way, the big idea that I wanted to point to in this is that the pattern of sin that was before the flood is there on the other side of the flood. And it doesn't take long to head there, right? It doesn't take long to head there. So whereas Noah, through Christ, through God, provided the rescue boat of that time, the next rescue boat, the, knife, the next life preserver, was going to actually address this issue, the fact that we're broken from the inside out, that we need to be restored, not necessarily physically, but spiritually restored. That's the rescue plan that we're left with present day. A God that said, you know what? I'm going to send my only son. He's going to live the perfect life. He's going to die as a sacrifice on a cruel Roman cross and provide a way of escape from that sin issue that we're all filled up with. That's the amazing thing that we sing about on Sunday mornings. That's what we gather to celebrate and point the spotlight on is that's the rescue of present day. Well, my hope is, is that in the course of studying this little section of Scripture, that we're reminded some things in his defense about his character, that he always offers rescue before judgment, that he's not forgotten you, that he notices our praises. He notices when we take time to say thank you. That his boundaries are not unrealistic. That they're there. And the amazing one, that's the concluding one, is that what we, what we just saw there. Is that his faithfulness does not depend on ours. If there's anything worthy of an amen, that's the good news. Is that's our God that we conclude by singing about. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the section of Scripture, and the reality is, 
is that you do perfectly walk the line between judge and lover of mankind. You always offer a means of rescue. Thank you this morning as we see on the other side of the flood what that ultimate rescue would be of Jesus Christ. Pray for anyone that's maybe here in this room that's never embraced that free gift, that they wouldn't be like the guys and ladies in Noah's day that didn't hop on the boat. They'd make the choice even in these moments this morning to accept that rescue, to cling to that rescue, to call out for that rescue. Love that you're listening and waiting, that you engage with our worship, that you hear our worship, that you notice our worship. We praise you here this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. If we can pray for you, we have volunteers in the front.